One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to Somewhere in the Skies. I'm your host, Ryan Sprague. Sometimes you come across a case so well documented and so detailed that it leaves you wanting to learn more, even if the truth isn't what you expected or wanted. And this is exactly what happened when I tripped upon a fascinating article published on the New Zealand news site, Stuff. I contacted the editors over at Stuff and immediately secured the rights to the article. Today, you're going to hear the incredible story of one woman who went to milk her cows on a farm in Blenheim, New Zealand. What happened next would alter her life and the lives of many around her until her dying day. The following episode presents the exceptionally well-documented and thoroughly detailed article in its entirety, researched and written by Charlie Gates. The episode features the voiceover talents of Megan Mazicone, Steve Mazicone, and Jim Reese. My sincere thanks goes out to Charlie Gates and these three actors for bringing this case to my attention and then bringing it to startling life. It's my pleasure to now present to you Finding Mrs. Moreland, how one woman's UFO claim exposed paranoia and fear in 1950s New Zealand. Eileen Moreland went out to milk the cows one morning in the South Island town of Blenheim in 1959. She returned home about 80 minutes later with an extraordinary story. She claimed a large craft descended from the sky and hovered above her. Her statement was full of astonishing detail. She saw two men inside the craft wearing silver spacesuits. One of them was missing his left hand. Local Air Force officials took her claim seriously. They assigned an investigator who interviewed Moreland and found her to be credible. And they found others in Blenheim who had seen similar lights. Her story felt like a modern New Zealand myth. And like all myths, it expressed the peculiar anxieties of its time. Her story chimed with Cold War paranoia atomic fears, and worries over the accelerating technology of 1950s New Zealand. Understanding her story could reveal something about a strange moment in New Zealand history. It also exposed how the military would lie to keep her story secret in the decades that followed. What had Moreland seen? What had happened to her since? Was she still alive? Could she cast new light on her incident? After decades of secrecy, this is her story.
This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. Blenheim, New Zealand, was booming. The farming town had doubled from about 6,000 people in 1945 to 12,000 in 1961. The Moreland family was part of that population boom. Eileen Moreland, her husband Frederick, and their five children had moved to the town by 1943. They purchased a nine-acre farm on the corner of Old Renwick Road and Coleman's Road in the western suburb of Springlands in the mid-1950s. They lived in a modest white wooden house with a red tin roof and a brick chimney. Fruit trees were largely cleared to create two paddocks for some Ashire dairy cows and a few sheep. Moreland used to show the cows at local events. On the morning of July 13th, 1959, Moreland was 42 and had been married for 19 years. Her children ranged in age from preschool to late teens. She was tall and wiry, with short, brown, curly hair and pronounced eyebrows. She set out to milk the cows at 5.30 a.m. It was normal for her to be up so early. She was a hard-working woman. As well as running dairy cows, she also held down a few other jobs. Locals would turn to her for advice if their cows were unwell. She was a nurse aide at the local Lister Hospital. Her husband worked as a patrolman at Woodburn Air Base, about six kilometers from their home. Moreland had also worked there occasionally. The Air Base was one of the largest businesses in Blenheim by the end of the 1950s and was an integral part of the small community. Surplus planes were sold cheaply to locals by the Air Force after World War II. They were repurposed as children's playhouses, or their parts were used for washing lines. Moreland's hobby was reading. Donald Parker remembered that when she wasn't working, she was a great reader. Parker married Moreland's eldest daughter in 1967. This chilly morning was routine. Moreland reached the cowshed, turned on the lights and radio, grabbed her torch, and set off across the paddock. Over the next few decades, she would tell journalists, researchers, and Air Force officials about what had happened in the next 80 minutes. Here is what Moreland claimed. Halfway across the paddock, I saw a strange green glow through the little clouds. The green glow broke through the cloud cover and became two lights, like eyes of big lamps. Everything was bathed in an eerie light that overwhelmed her torch. It was a horrid sort of color. My first thought was, I shouldn't be here, and I made a dive for the trees. From her hiding place among a shelter belt of pine trees, she looked up. It was the most beautiful thing I ever seen. A circular craft, about nine meters wide and with a curved glass cockpit, silently descended towards her. Two shafts of green light beamed down from its underside. Two rows of small orange jets shot outwards like spokes from the rim of the disk. 
the craft suddenly stopped descending and began to hover about four and a half meters from the ground. The jets disappeared and then reappeared, pointing sideways in two rows. The top row spanned clockwise very fast, while the bottom row moved in the opposite direction, trailing orange flames. The air on this cold July morning became warm, and she noticed a low hum. I was scared, Steve, but curious and enchanted by the lights. It was just imprinted indelibly on my mind. I just took it in. I saw everything in those few minutes. Inside the curved glass cockpit, she could see two figures wearing shiny silver suits and helmets. The suits were tight like a wetsuit and looked like they were made of aluminum foil. The men were seated one in front of the other. Both had their backs to her. A flickering light shone up from below them, reflecting off their suits. Then, one of the silver-suited men emerged from the craft and walked towards her. I could see his face through a small visor on the helmet. He was wearing a white belt and a black disc at the center. He had a harness on his chest and held a small dial and a series of tubes coming out of his helmet. His left hand was missing and was encased in a dark sheath. Then he shouted at me in a foreign language I couldn't recognize. The man retreated back to the craft and got back on board. After a few moments, the jets started shooting out from the craft again. It tilted at an angle and then shot up into the sky at great speed. As it retreated behind the clouds, it made a soft, high-pitched whine. Then, she was alone, standing in a waft of hot, peppery air. She was relieved that the attracting power of the green lights had gone, but didn't know what to do next. Eventually, she finished milking the cows. While I was milking, I kept wondering felt a bit shaken and puzzled. I didn't quite know what to do about it. She returned to the house and woke her husband to tell him what she'd seen. I feared he would laugh at me, but he took me seriously and asked if I called the police. She rang the police at 7 a.m. Woodburn commanding officer Arthur Gainsford visited the farm and interviewed Moreland later that day. Her husband, Frederick, had told Gainsford about his wife's claims that morning. Gainsford found Moreland calm and rational. Local police told him she was a rational and stable person. From their personal knowledge of her, Gainsford also found a second witness. A local farmer named Roy Haldaway, who lived about seven kilometers from Moreland's house. He'd seen a bright light in the sky about 30 minutes before Moreland's sighting. The claim attracted publicity. Moreland gave an extensive interview to the Nelson Evening Mail about her sighting. On July 22nd, the paper ran a story under the headline, Went to Milk the Cows. This is what Blenheim Woman said she saw. But Moreland did not tell the journalist about the one-handed man emerging from the craft. For now, she kept that detail to herself. Moreland was not alone in claiming to see the lights in the sky in 1950s New Zealand. 
Newspapers were filled with people adamant they'd seen unusual craft. Each witness saw different shaped objects in the sky. One was shaped like a rolled up newspaper. There was a lizard, a stingray, a horseshoe, a silver cigar, or a flying barrel even. Many claimed to see balls of light traveling through the night sky. Some were green, others were orange and red. Some described their sightings with a new term recently imported from the United States. They called them flying saucers. I am here to discuss the so-called flying saucers. The Air Force interest in this problem has been due to our feeling of an obligation to identify and analyze to the best of our ability anything in the air that may have the possibility of threat or menace to the United States. In pursuit of this obligation since 1947, we have received and analyzed between one and 2,000 reports that have come to us from all kinds of sources. However, there have been a certain percentage of this volume of reports that have been made by credible observers of relatively incredible things. It is this group of observations that we now are attempting to resolve. The New Zealand Air Force was curious about the sightings and wanted to find out what was happening in their airspace. In 1952, Air Force Sergeant Harold Fulton established the Civilian Saucer Investigation to prove or disprove the existence of flying saucers. He claimed to have 350 members in 1956 and had logged 700 sightings by 1957. In 1953, the Air Force's Director of Intelligence paid five shillings to subscribe to Fulton's quarterly UFO newsletter. He wrote that the reports of the Society were read with interest. In 1956, Civilian Aviation Minister Thomas Shand believed the subject of flying saucers always appears to present a new aspect full of interest and mystery. The Air Force took Moreland's claim seriously enough to appoint Flight Lieutenant Charles Milford Jennings to investigate. Jennings was a good choice. The 34-year-old had been in the Air Force for 16 years and was a decorated officer. He was awarded a British Empire Medal in 1953 for working 72 hours straight repairing planes during World War II. He went to England to personally receive his honor from the Queen. Jennings began as an instrument fitter for the Air Force and was now in charge of instruments and electrics on all aircraft at Woodburn. He was a North Island boy, born in Ratihi, who had moved from Auckland to Woodburn with his wife and three children in May that year. He had spent five months in Woodburn the year before. Jennings looked like a classic Air Force officer, with his dashing looks, slicked back hair, and light brown eyes. He was curious about a rash of sightings, but wanted to apply scientific rigor to the subject. His son, Lee Jennings, remembers his father as practical, but open-minded. He was a technical person, and to do that, you have to use logic to work things through. But at the same time, he was particularly open-minded, especially for his generation. He did a bit of yoga here and there, cooked from time to time. This was at a time when men didn't really go into the kitchen. 
He was also a hobbyist writer and painted abstract oil paintings that still hang on his children's walls. His oldest son, Wayne Jennings, remembers how his father approached problems. Agnostic was his basic stance on life. Give me the evidence and I will tell you what I think. He had a real scientist mind. He used to say that there's nothing more exciting in life than being on the cutting edge of knowledge. Something like a UFO wasn't going to completely and utterly bamboozle them. But Jennings was skeptical about people who believed the rash of sightings were proof of alien life. He dismissed the Civilian Saucer Investigation Group as unscientific. Its publications fell far short of scientific investigation because of far too much emotive language and potted thinking. He would prove his objective approach two years later when he investigated another sighting. In June of 1961, a pilot at Woodburn claimed to have seen a bright opalescent green disc in the sky and felt a pain in his eyes afterwards. Jennings solved the puzzle. The pilot had an eye infection. But the Moreland case was tougher. Gainsford later wrote that Jennings took the case seriously. Jennings has spent considerable private time on this matter. He is prepared to turn out at any hour, day or night to personally investigate further incidents. Wayne Jennings said his father spent a lot of time on the case. He must have spent quite a long time interviewing Moreland because my mother was very suspicious of their relationship. His investigation was colored by the anxieties of 1950s New Zealand. Cold War paranoia, nuclear fears, and worries over new technology all played a role in his inquiries. Since early in the war, the trucks of the New Zealand Army Service Corps have been a familiar sight on the roads of Korea. Wherever battle has carried them, Kiwi guns have gone too. But even when the guns aren't firing, the work's still going on. Every hour of 24, there are Kiwis working somewhere in Korea. When the time comes to go back, they know the importance of the job on hand. These men and those yet to replace them will be proud to have been Kiwis in Korea. In 1954, the director of Wellington's Carter Observatory, Ivan Thompson, neatly summarized the way these fears affected thinking about flying saucers. In a world frightened by atomic bombs, amazed by phenomenal aircraft performances, becoming used to thoughts of space travel and living in part in an atmosphere of comic strip nonsense, the alleged flying saucer phenomena has developed a form of mass hysteria. A headline in the Auckland Star in 1954 was more succinct. It read simply, Has Russia got atomic saucers? Jennings first interviewed Moreland ten days after the sighting. He took along an audio oscillator machine, which could generate different musical tones, in order to find out the exact tone of the aircraft's engine. His summary of the interview is packed with details about the size and shape of the craft. The report notes the craft tilted at an angle of 15 degrees before it shot away, and that it hummed at a frequency of 250 hertz. Moreland did not mention the one-handed man in her interview, and Jennings sensed she was holding something back. He simply wrote in his notes, Can I get more out of her? But he believed her account. Mrs. Moreland did not convey to me any impression of being excitable by nature. She was helpful and, I believe, 
was quite honestly convinced that she didn't fax the aircraft. His statement stands up in all respects. The craft Moreland described would have been familiar to people in the 1950s. Flying saucers were a vivid part of the popular imagination from countless sightings and science fiction movies. Jennings even looked for possible new technologies similar to what Moreland had described. He kept a newspaper clipping in his file about two flying saucers being developed in the U.S. and Britain. But the flying saucers were in fact early prototypes of the hovercraft and only capable of very noisily hovering a few meters off the ground. An extensive program of research and development in the field of disc flight, which was started in 1952, is being conducted by Avro Aircraft Limited at Malton, Ontario. Early studies on behalf of the United States Air Force proved the feasibility of a circular platform vertical. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So, whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Takeoff aircraft utilizing a system of peripheral jets for propulsion, stabilization, and control. The current phase of the program entails the design and construction of the Avro car, an 18-foot diameter test vehicle for the United States Army. But the idea that Moreland had seen some kind of experimental military aircraft was not outrageous. Anything seemed to be possible in the 1950s. The skies above New Zealand were filled for the first time with exotic new technology, capable of unprecedented speed and performance. In 1955, numerous people reported seeing strange flying pencils over the west coast of the South Island. It turned out they were the Air Force's new vampire jets screaming across the South Island sky. Moreland referred to vampire jets in her interview with Jennings. The jets, first introduced in New Zealand in 1951, sometimes used Woodburn Air Base. Moreland would tell Jennings that the craft shot away at a speed that would make a vampire look like it was standing still. In a further sign of his commitment to the case, one day Jennings took a Geiger counter to Moreland's paddock at 3 a.m. and waited there until dawn to see if he could detect anything. 
He was clearly troubled by the prospect that Moreland may have been exposed to radiation from the craft, especially since Moreland had developed physical symptoms after the sighting. The backs of my hands were painful. Blisters popped up like pimples on my hands, lower lip and back. If I scratched them, watery residue came out. Then more would come up. I had a painful swelling under my left eye and a small patch like a brown mole that appeared on my forehead. I did not want to consult a civilian doctor and would only see Woodbourne's medical officer if the matter was kept highly confidential. Gainsford was skeptical, however, and would eventually state, The symptoms shown could of course be self-induced due to nervous strain. The blisters and the mole faded after six months. The consequences of radiation exposure were well known to the people living through the Cold War and the nuclear face-off between the U.S. and Russia. Neville Shute's novel, On the Beach, was a bestseller in New Zealand and had vividly popularized the deadly consequences of a nuclear conflict. Kiwi soldiers had officially observed British and U.S. nuclear tests from 1956 to 1958 in Australia, the Pacific, and Nevada. Jennings wrote a report on the sighting claim, which was sent to squadron leader James McClement. He replied within the day. Due to the absence of corroborative evidence, the report does not appear to warrant further action. It seemed like the case was dead. But about a week later, the Marlboro Express ran two stories about locals seeing a green light in the sky at about 6.50 p.m. on August 7th. Jennings tracked down three of the witnesses and interviewed them. A woman told him she was looking for her newspaper on the front lawn in the dark. Gradually, I began to be able to see the details around me more clearly. I noticed my paper, picked it up, and thought, that's funny, where's the light coming from? So I looked up and saw a bright, richly emerald green ball of light. I had the thing in view for several seconds and got the impression that it was tumbling over, spinning, but much faster than it was going along. An Air Force officer also saw a vivid green sphere that lit up the ground so that he could see all of the road. The object was rotating, and it looked rather like a Catherine Wheel firecracker when lit. He could not really describe the green color because it was unlike any other green he'd ever seen. It was vivid indeed, though. It must have sounded familiar to Jennings. Then there was another break in the case. Moreland finally told Jennings about the man in the silver suit with one hand. The silver suit Moreland described was a familiar symbol of the space age. In January of 1958, about 18 months before Moreland's sighting, U.S. test pilot Scott Crossfield appeared on the cover of Life magazine. At Edwards Air Force Base, a B-52 mother plane carries aloft the X-15 rocket plane for another in the painstaking series of development tests, leading up to the epic mission for which it was designed. Carry a man beyond the fringes of the Earth's atmosphere and return him to the ground. In this powerless fight, pilot Scott Crossfield brings the X-15 down through the pre-planned glide pattern without a hitch. The space plane's first free flight is a success. Wearing a shiny silver pressure suit, helmet, and black gloves, 
The suit was almost exactly the same as the one she'd described. Jennings kept a clipping of the Life magazine cover in his file. Moreland also told Jennings how the man shouted at her in a foreign language. Jennings thought it may have been Russian. The new details were taken seriously. The security classification on the sighting was raised from confidential to secret, meaning they felt it could raise international tensions. All communication about the sighting was handwritten to avoid typists reading the details. Moreland was told to keep her information to herself. Only three people knew about the man in the suit. Moreland, Jennings, and Gainsford. The merest hint of Russian involvement was enough to prompt an urgent response. The Cold War fight against Russia was very real in 1950s New Zealand. Kiwi soldiers fought in the American war against communist insurgents in Malaya from 1956 to 1960, with 15 losing their lives. The chill of the Cold War was also felt in Blenheim. Long-range Canberra bombers purchased to make sure New Zealand was ready to fight a possible war against communist China were serviced at Woodburn. The CIA's secret airline had also operated from Woodburn in 1951. Britain's long-range nuclear bomber, the Avro Vulcan, landed at Woodburn Air Base in 1956 for the locals to have a look. The Marlboro Express ran a story just 10 days after Russia launched its Sputnik satellite in October 1957. It was about a Russian satellite that had been left on their doorstep. It turned out the item, which bore a crudely painted hammer and sickle along with the words, Return to Moscow, was just a ventilator from a Blenheim building. Moreland's new claim, along with annotated drawings, was sent to Air Force headquarters on August 20th. Gainsford vouched for Jennings' objectivity, writing that he had no previous interest in matters of this nature and commenced his task with an open mind. Wing Commander G.S. Martin's response was withering and brought the investigation to a close. The only possible conclusion to be drawn from the evidence is that Mrs. Morland was hallucinating, or that her story is an imaginative exaggeration of a normal subjective experience, and that there was in fact no such visitation by an object as described in the report. As for other sightings in August, they have no apparent relationship to the Morland report, but fit neatly with a description of Venus shining through a diffuse layer of high cloud or ice crystals, and seen through a layer of lower broken cloud, the latter being under the influence of a northwesterly airstream. Records show that Venus would have appeared very bright and low in the sky on the night the witnesses saw the green light. Astronomer Marcel Midiart writes that Venus can turn from dull red to green as it meets the horizon and can appear to move as it is diffracted through the atmosphere. The planet Venus, seen against the purple twilight sky, can also appear emerald green. Moreland's claims created a swirl of gossip in the small town of Blenheim. On July 28th, the Marlboro Express ran an article dispelling rumors that have spread rapidly to the effect that the flying object left behind it a patch of scorched ground and that the area has been cordoned off by the police 
and Air Force. Police were treating the matter with a certain amount of reserve, although, owing to the number of previous reports having been cited in various parts of the country, they could not discount the matter entirely. The ground may not have been scorched, but Moreland later told reporters that a row of peach trees in the paddock had died. When the trees were cut up for firewood, the cores of the branches were black ash like soot. The top branches of a walnut tree in the paddock had also died. On August 26th, Moreland received a poison pen letter. It simply stated, You have talked. The fallout from the sightings affected Moreland's children. Moreland's son-in-law, Donald Parker, said that years later, his wife did not want to speak about the experience. There is a strange epilogue to the 1959 sighting. In March 1960, Moreland made another claim. This time, she said she saw a distant light in the sky. Jennings was given the case again and interviewed Moreland before filing a report to Gainsford. Moreland demanded absolute privacy on the matter and was given assurance the Air Force would never release any files or speak publicly on the matter. Gainsford wrote in a memo, The previous incident was the cause of considerable publicity, much of which was of a derogatory nature, due in part to a press statement issued by Moreland. Senior Air Force officers and the Secretary of Defense would unfairly cast doubt on Moreland's credibility and paint Jennings as a biased investigator. Air Marshal Richard Bolt wrote to Radio New Zealand in 1979, stating that the evidence suggests that Moreland was in an emotionally unstable condition at the time. A letter from Secretary of Defense McLean in 1979 claimed Jennings allowed his obvious interest to reflect and to strengthen Moreland's convictions. Also in 1979, a journalist requested the Moreland report. The request was refused on the grounds that Moreland was given an assurance of confidentiality about the sighting. Internal minutes show they knew this response was not true. It only applied to the 1960 sighting. In regard to the original sighting in July of 1959, Moreland was not given a personal assurance of confidentiality. Rather, she was told by the RNZAF investigating officer to keep her information to herself. A request for the report in 1983 was also refused. The decision was appealed to Chief Ombudsman George Lanking. The Secretary of Defense wrote to Lanking in 1984, arguing the document should be withheld because otherwise the defense force would be overwhelmed with requests from the eccentric hobbyist and the more extreme believers in visitations from outer space and those for whom UFOs will explain all the mysteries of the universe. The ministry should not, in my view, willingly get drawn into the pursuit of Chimera and should avoid providing fuel for fevered imaginations. The ombudsman was swayed by the argument, and the report was not released. The majority of the Moreland files, along with thousands of files on UFO sightings dating back to the 1940s, were eventually released to the public in 2010, after multiple Official Information Act requests. 
The year before, a spokesman for the Air Force told a North and South journalist that it held no files on UFOs. Some files on the Moreland case will not be released until 2070. The sighting would haunt the man who investigated the claim, Flight Lieutenant Charles Milford Jennings. He retired from the Air Force in 1974 at the age of 50. He had reached the rank of Wing Commander after 31 years of service. He did not speak to his two sons about the sighting claim while he was still in the Air Force. He later deflected their questions by saying that he was still bound by the Official Secrets Act, which he signed upon retirement. His son, Lee Jennings, said he talked about it very briefly. All he could really say was that he was sure that the witness fully believed their story. He was sure they were not bullshitting. That was his take on it. His other son, Wayne Jennings, said his father pondered on the case later in life. He was fascinated by the 1979 Kaikoura Lights case, where a film crew flying from Blenheim to Christchurch filmed lights that tracked their plane for hours. He also sought out a 1968 book by New Zealand pilot Bruce Cathy called Harmonic 33. In the book, Cathy plots UFO sightings on a New Zealand map and concludes they conform to a systematic grid pattern. Cathy concludes that interplanetary spaceships have constructed a world grid system from which they can draw power and navigate the globe. He claimed his findings provided a key that may unlock the secrets of UFOs. Jennings would have been interested to discover that Blenheim played a key role in Kathy's world grid. Kathy would state, Even before the advent of ordinary aircraft in New Zealand, this area had been visited by saucers. Many recent sightings suggested again that this area had something special about it. Wayne Jennings said his father had thought deeply about the sighting. I asked him if he believes in UFOs. And he said he had an open mind. It was an unexplained phenomenon. At the end, he leaned towards the idea that this was an alien presence of some sort. He believed her. In later life, Jennings took up writing. His children never got a chance to read his work. Shortly before his death in 1999, he destroyed all of it. Moreland never spoke publicly about the one-handed man emerging from the craft and how the sighting had impacted the rest of her life. And she never would. She died in a rest home in Omaru in 2016. She was 99 years old. Her family were also reluctant to talk. One of her daughters did not want to talk about the sighting. She wanted her mother remembered as a kind and hard-working woman. Only Moreland's name at the time of the sighting had been used in this story to respect the family's wishes. This story has been constructed using interviews Moreland gave to UFO investigators and journalists from the 1970s to the 1990s, interviews with family members and historic Air Force files. In 1979, the government asked Moreland about the possibility of releasing its files on her sighting claim. After 20 years, a new name, a new place of abode, I was hoping to sink into oblivion, but somehow I'd been found. 
If you have knowledge of the full events of that awful morning, you will realise that to suggest that the UFO people are friendly is laugh, as I know full well. I'm 20 years older, have a full life, and am enjoying life in general. I just couldn't bear to be put through the mill again. Her desire to be left alone stands in strange contrast to her decision just a few months earlier, in July 1978, to grant a television interview about her claims. At about this time, Moreland's story became part of UFO folklore. In November 1975, a U.S. comic book titled UFOs, Flying Saucers ran a strange comic strip version of the incident. A very glamorous Moreland encounters two men in spacesuits when setting out to milk the cows. She fears for her cow Bessie as the green light stalks her farm. When the spacecraft departs, Mrs. Moreland is left with the memory of an experience she can never fully explain to anyone. The Moreland family kept quiet about the sighting claims. Some of her children kept the sighting secret from even her grandchildren. They didn't want them to think less of their grandmother. Donald Parker visited Moreland in the rest home in 2015. I brought up the sighting when I saw it. I mentioned it and her daughter was behind it, out of sight of her mother. And she shook her head in a way that said, don't talk about that. I didn't say any more about it. In the years since the 1959 sighting, the Moreland family farm in Blenheim was slowly carved into smaller pieces and lost to development. The family had sold the farm and moved away by the early 1970s. The paddock where Moreland claimed to have seen the craft has since been carved into small suburban plots. In 2017, houses had not yet been built on the exact spot where this strange story unfolded. That spot remained empty. Just like the Moreland family farm, the past has been gradually lost. It gets harder to make out the details. There was only one person who knew the truth. The full story of the lights and the shadows they cast died with her. Somewhere in the Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. To learn more, visit entertainmentonepodcast.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.